According to the Drug Diversion Digest, nearly 19 million pills were diverted in the first six months of 2018. The fact that there is a drug diversion digest, at least for me, is stunning enough. The fact of 19 million pills being diverted in six months is astounding, but diverted by whom? Diverted to where? Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Rodrigo Garcia, and he can tell us a little bit about drug diversion. Rodrigo Garcia, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I do appreciate it. Uh, but the, the the numbers that you state are, are, are startling. In fact, uh, 19 million pills. Uh, diverted from the hospital systems or uh, from anywhere really that, that has medication and access. Uh, the, the providers themselves are the ones that are at the biggest risk for diverting medications. It is those people that have the most access to the medication who are diverting from the hospital for, for various, uh, various amount of reasons. So you know that that's pretty unnerving for folks. Uh, you, Rodrigo, have been a provider in emergency management, intensive care, education, surgical services, and anesthesia for more than 20 years. So you have a significant amount of experience in the medical field. How does your professional background fit into a conversation about pill diversion? So... Well, thank you for that. Yes. And I've been in the healthcare field as a direct care provider for over 20 years now. And, and I remember early on in my career, I would see um, uh, nurses that, or, or physicians or pharmacists that were suspected of diversions. And admittedly, I fell into that category of society that just kind of wagged my finger at them and uh, gave them everything uh, that they deserved as far as uh, being ostracized and being labeled. Um, but when you look at the profession, and in, 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 in particular those departments that you had mentioned, the high-stress, uh, long-hour departments, uh, the profession itself, healthcare profession and nursing in, in, in specifically, they have this thing around the, the development of the profession and the training of the profession that include a couple things. You're trained to take care of the patient no matter what the cost. You're trained to sacrifice yourself almost uh, at the expense of, uh, helping your patient, so you, you miss t-ball games. You don't come in early. You don't come in. Uh, you don't go home early. Um, you miss family events. It's, we're not taught in the healthcare profession to take care of ourselves. And over time, the increased stress, the access to the medication, the long work hours, uh, not having a healthy balance, all of those things culminate into this perfect storm when the introduction of the medication comes in, that introduction comes in in a lot of variety of ways. Hardly ever is it curiosity. I wonder what this feels like to do drugs. It starts with an injury or a prescription or a stress or a depression or a mental health dual diagnosis. And with that perfect storm of the profession that, that is innate to the profession, uh, it, it's ripe for an addiction and a diversion to occur. Now, Rodrigo, you were at the height of your career as a chief certified registered nurse anesthetist. I always have trouble with that word. So tell us. (laughs) Okay, good. Then I feel better. Tell us what happened to you. How did you become involved in diversion? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a very fair question. And it's an important question. And, and I think it's really important, too, that I stress at this point that until it happened to me, I would fall, I would, I would classify, myself, classify myself in the general thought frame and, and the societal acceptable when you think about diversion and addiction in healthcare professionals. Uh, I thought that they had uh, character defects. I thought they had lack of um, the willpower. I thought it was uh, something was wrong with that person. They needed to be punished for it. So my, my story kind of unfolded as such. Uh, I was playing in a baseball game, an immense uh, fast pitch baseball league. I played a little bit of baseball in college and uh, thought for some reason that I could hang on to my youth a little bit longer. <laughs> I, I, I ended up breaking my ankle during the game and I jumped up. I came down on my ankle. I inverted it um, and it broke. So over the weekend, I thought I could just walk it off. My, my wife, who has a very significant part of this story, as she was the charge nurse in the surgery department where I ended up diverting the medications from, um, but my wife encouraged me to get my ankle checked out for the surgery and uh, for the injury, and I finally went to the emergency room on the Monday, and once I did, I realized that there was a compound fracture and there was a break in it that I needed a surgical repair on. Now, important to note, this was the first time I was ever given a prescription medication for opiates. Uh, I got a prescription for the acute injury, I got another prescription for the surgery, and then another one for the post-op, and then the rehabilitative part um, of, the, of the injury. The whole thing lasted, with the prescription medication, about three months. Uh, legitimate prescription, mind you. Then it was time for me to go back to work. And I often describe this, this part of my, uh, of my story as the, the crossroads in my life that really changed everything. Uh, I'm ready to go back to work, and I wake up, and I have the worst flu-like symptoms ever that I could ever imagine. It was debilitating. By the time I got to work, I could barely uh, navigate the hallways. In my mind, I already started thinking, I can't ask for more time off of work. They just accommodated me for the past three months. Uh, so I... I forged ahead and made it through the first couple cases of the day. And the, the physical pain that I had started to experience was, was very, very debilitating. I went out to my car and I still had some of the opioid prescription uh, in my car. And I said, well, at least I can maybe temper down some of the physical pains that I'm feeling. And I took one of the pills that I had legally by prescription. And within 10 minutes, not only did the pain go away, but I felt so much better. I felt better than I had in the past 24 hours. That was the moment in my, in my story, in my life, that I was at a crossroads. I knew that it was not the flu that I was going through. I was experiencing signs of withdrawal symptoms. Uh -huh. And so with that awareness that you were experiencing withdrawal, what did you do? So I, I remember having this, almost this conversation with myself at the time. And um, you know, I'm, I'm trained to be very scientific, very evidence-based. Uh, by my profession, and I literally had two options, and I went through both of them, and these were my options. Rigo, you know how to take care of, you know how to prescribe this medication. You give it to your patients. You're an expert in the field on managing controlled substances. This is what you've been doing for the past 15 to 20 years of your, of your career. You can wean yourself down off of this medication. You can um, get one more prescription if that doesn't work, and, and Get yourself on a taper schedule. You know how to do that. One will go back into work. You keep working. 
Rodrigo, we're losing you. Uh, so I'm going to ask you once again to go back to the point where you were talking about a tapering down from the medication. Well, my, and my apologies. I'm not sure why I'm not moving at all, but we'll, we'll try this again. Huh. So I, I was... I was faced with two options, and one option, I could taper myself off the medication. I knew how to do it. I was trained on how to do this. This is what I did for my patients. Uh, if I would taper myself off, the, the process would take about a week or two, um, and that seemed like a logical option for me. I'd get another prescription if I needed to, if I didn't have enough medication to do a safe, effective taper, and within a couple weeks, it would be uh, a story that was in the past. The other option I had was I could go back into the facility. I could raise my hand and say, I'm addicted to medication. I'm going through withdrawal. I need some help. I need some time off of work. I may need to go into a treatment center. I may need to detox. And that comes with the social stigma and the social uh, and what I call it, the scarlet letter of addiction. Of course. And, and everything about that scared me. Uh, the admitting that I wasn't perfect the uh, admitting my faults and, and putting them out there, the same judgment would be passed on me, I feared, that I passed on others previously. So I took the one road that said, I'll just taper it down and I'll be off these medications in a week or two. Well, that week or two lasted months. And then those months turned into many months. And the many months stacked up and we're talking about a year. When I couldn't get the prescription medication anymore and my tolerance had increased over this process, and my withdrawal symptoms had increased over this process. Um, and I couldn't get any more prescriptions. Uh, it had been several months by that time. Uh, I started using the waste medication after surgery that I wasn't using on patients. Instead of disposing of it properly, I would use that for a personal attempt of medicating the withdrawal symptoms. And that's how it all started. So when you say waste medication, that's the actual uh, prescription that was used, but there was some left. And after surgery, medications that aren't used are not saved. They're dispensed with? Yes, that is correct. And, and that's okay. uh, probably a good point to clear up. Um, there's the medications that are prescribed uh, by the physicians in the hospital, or in my case, by the anesthesia provider, which happened to be me. Uh, they were prescribed, and they're prescribed in, in uh, the easiest way to describe it is rounded up numbers. Uh, so, or they're multi-dose vials, meaning the, the vial contains more medication in it than what's prescribed. So there's a mechanism in place at all facilities to dispose of safely that waste medication that has not been prescribed to the patient and is not intended to be used. Um, it was that medication after the patient got their, their dosage, instead of disposing of that medication, I would use it to alleviate the withdrawal symptoms in an attempt to wean myself off the medication over the course of time. I see. Rodrigo, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue. Folks, I'm Pamela Brewer having a conversation with Rodrigo Garcia, who will continue to explain to us the issue of diversion in medical care facilities. We'll be right back.
Rodrigo, you were telling us how you became addicted to opioids and all the things that you did to hide the addiction and to heal yourself from the addiction. Today, you are with the Parkdale Center for Professionals and Parkdale Solutions, I believe a, a, a diversion consulting program for healthcare facilities. So how did you go from the Rodrigo who was hiding his addiction to now being the Rodrigo who is actually helping others to heal from their own addictions? Well, thank you for that question. And I could not have um, I could not have planned this journey. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. It, it, it's kind of unfolded in this, in this wonderful way that it has over the past uh, uh, ten years or so. But uh, a couple of things I noticed when I was uh, I was mandated to go into a treatment center, and they said, you know, you're a high risk professional. You need to go into a treatment center that uh, is specific to your profession. It's very much akin to an alcoholic who wants to be a bartender and can never drink again. I had access to the medications that I was addicted to, and I was trying to reenter the profession, so I needed a very specific program for that. Uh, and when I walked into this treatment center, uh, there was several hours away from my hometown, and I passed about 15 treatment centers on the way. I noticed one thing that really started changing the course of how I looked at addiction, um, and, and it was there were about 30 other people in that room that were just like me. They were successful. They're healthcare providers and doctors and nurses and pilots. And they all had addiction, and many of them, almost all of them, were had diverted from the hospital to um, to feed their addiction. And that really struck me as odd that I wasn't the only one. I wasn't the only one that was broken. I wasn't. There wasn't something wrong with me. That this happens. This happens uh, amongst healthcare. And I really. I started to dive into this whole segment of the population that I've never heard about before, the impaired healthcare professional. Then it started to make sense. High-stress job, access to the medication, knowledge on how to use the medication, and taking care of everybody else except themselves. So as I mentioned my wife in, in the past, she said, let's try to do something about the system. Um, you've identified what's, what's not right with it. Let's try to do something about it. So we both went back to school and got our MBA degrees with this crazy thought of opening up a treatment center one day. And we'll fast forward to um, 2015. We opened up Parkdale Center for Professionals, uh, which is the only health professionals program in the state of Indiana. And we have treated over 500 healthcare professionals since then who have a very, very similar story uh, to mine. You change the location, you change the hospital, and, um, and, and there you have it. Uh, something happened by process of working with all of these individuals that came through. They started telling us how they were doing it at the hospital. How were they able to get away with it? How they were getting the medication? And after about the first month or two, I started hearing new things that I wasn't doing, new techniques, um, new circumventing of policies. Uh, and and we, we thought that was very striking and very important, and we started cataloging all of these different ways that people are diverting from the hospital. And uh, a couple of years ago, we went into a hospital and said, we'd like to help you with the diversion uh, prevention and education. And from that, it's really kind of blown off into a, a, a product that we offer hospitals, and we do um, investigations and education and prevention, and we look at diversion from a different perspective. From the perspective of a team of experts who have been there, many of them have done it. And when you look at it through that perspective, you'll see policies 
the culture of the hospital different. You'll see the opportunity to divert much, much different than you would by reading a policy off of a standard manual. Well, let me ask you this. You, you were diverting med- medication from the hospital. Um, you know, there are some folks who were saying, okay, so he was like taking stuff that didn't belong to him. And even if it was being prepared for disposal, it was still not for him. Wasn't that a crime? Did he get any criminal charges? Are criminal charges ever lodged against medical professionals who are diverting medication? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, so kind of a twofold answer to that question is, uh, number one, our strong position is that there should be some accountability and there, there has to be some account, uh, consequences uh, for nothing else for the recovery process. Folks will heal and folks will get much better and engage in programming when they have accountability and consequences levied upon them, either to get them into treatment or even in the mo- very, very important years after recovery. And uh, I had more than my share of uh, consequences, many talks and discussions and uh, charges with the Office of the Attorney General and the State Board of Nursing. I had to remain off of work for a complete year uh, where I had to subsidize my income by doing odd jobs. Uh, so going from you know, the, the top of um, the, my profession to cutting grass to, to supplement my income, uh, those were part of my consequences that I had to face. But, yes, I, I absolutely had licensure, professional, um, some legal uh, and all of these things were as a result of the decisions that I made while I was battling an addiction. Um, the second part of that question is, is that that's one of the problems or one of the challenges that we have right now in the country is that there's no uniformity to that. Mm. Um, some folks get discovered diverting from the hospital and they'll get fired at the workplace. Some folks will get reported to the DEA and we may spend some time in jail for that. And anything in between, we, we have been... Um, blessed and, and, and privileged to be able to work with folks around the country, what we're starting to identify is a pattern throughout the country. So when folks now come to us at the treatment center with a high level of uh, accuracy, if they tell me how they got to our facility, I can almost tell you what hospital system across the country they came from. Interesting. So if they come, it's, it's very interesting. So if they say, for example, you know, they, uh, they thought that I was not well so they called me in they asked me if i needed help i'm familiar with the hospital and i know that the hospital is uh, rehabilitative that they're recovery friendly i've had four or five people before me that have gone through this as a process in place so i told them i needed help they gave me a leave of absence they let me keep my insurance they put me in a treatment center i had to pay restitution for everything that happened and then i helped them with their diversion policy and told them what i did so the next person wouldn't do it there's a lot of hospitals that do that very well, and they have very, very loyal attrition rates, and their employees are very satisfied with that culture. There's other hospitals, however, that say uh, they fired me from my position. They turned me into the DEA. They turned me into the attorney general. Uh, they gave me a stamp of an addiction and said, you'll never work in this town again, and anything in between. There's really no uniformity to how this is done. You know, it's interesting that it is – an issue that is so uniform uh, and that it happens in medical facilities all over the country, all over the world, but that there is no uniformity in how the issue is dealt with. It just kind of 
at least boggles my mind. I don't understand that. Well, one of the things that we have found out, and you're absolutely right in saying that, but one of the things that we have found uh, by working with so many hospital systems and in, in the report that was just released as well, that many of the hospitals feel on a self-report questionnaire that they are doing a very good job with diversion and diversion prevention. Many of them understand, the vast majority understand that it occurs in their workplace, but very few feel that it occurs in their workplace. Uh-huh. So, okay. And that's one of the big challenges that we face uh, uh, is it getting them to believe that, no, it happens everywhere, even right here in your backyard. That's where they're often shocked and surprised when someone overdoses in the bathroom or a pharmacy has a report that says somebody's diverting in, in your surgery department. You know, the other thing that occurs to me is when you think about addiction, um, you know, part of the addiction recovery process, just sort of in general, is sort of working through, talking through the idea that nobody's perfect and that you could well have a slip, but it's not the end of the world and there are things that you can do. So in a medical facility, which would know that even more, one would think, why there is that reluctance to recognize that this is something that's likely to happen here in this hospital. It's more likely to happen in these departments versus these departments, but it doesn't mean it won't happen. And let's come up with a plan. It's just kind of odd, I think. It's very odd. It really is. I mean, these are, you know, some of the uh, hospitals are, you know, where, where we all seek solace when we're struggling and when we're in pain and life-saving measures, and to not have that turned upon their employees and their caregivers themselves seems like it's a little a little step behind, beyond uh, where it should be. However, hospitals are starting to get this. We, we can start to see some change in the horizon, which is very reassuring. Um, spreading the information like, we, like we're doing here today and some of these reports that are coming out, uh, being able to work with them on Parkdale Solutions at the hospitals, this is what we're seeing. If you took a poll nationally of how did people get into a treatment center, less than 4% of people will enter a treatment center on their own. In other words, hey, things are getting really bad. It's out of control. I can't stop. I can't do this. I need to get into a treatment center and get some help. Less than 4%, and those numbers are very equivalent at our treatment center as well. So that means 96% of the people that go into a treatment center, they overdose, they get uh, ordered by the court system, they get fired, they get caught, uh, there's a threat of a divorce. There's some external factor that's pushing them into a treatment center. When a hospital changes its culture, exactly as you're speaking to, and they give their employees permission, they give them resources, they give them assistance, and a path to not only get into treatment, but re-enter the workforce afterwards, we're seeing a 40, 50, 60% self-report rate from those facilities. When we go in and work with a hospital, they have a 5% self-report rate. Within the next six months after we leave that hospital, those numbers start to increase 20, 30, 40, 50%. And that's the direction we need to continue to go in. By the time the physical symptoms manifest and are obvious, is the general population that someone's diverting drugs from the hospital or impaired or um, mis- misusing their prescription. By the time that's apparent, obviously apparent, the addiction is already in its later stages and it's been going on for months.
That makes sense. Rodrigo, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, the facility that you and your wife are involved with. Folks, don't go away. This is Pamela Brewer. We'll be back in just a moment. Rodrigo, before we talk about Parkdale Center, just a moment ago you were sharing with us the impact, some of the impact of the work that you do in which people are more able, better able to self-report. Would you say in general that if a clinician is using a substance or, or, or somehow involved in behaviors that are harmful to them, that most of their peers know or most of their peers don't know? That's a fantastic question. Um, we actually asked this question of, of the family members and the spouses and the coworkers once they come into treatment. And uh, very conservatively, I would say 90% at least of employees, uh, coworkers, and family members know that something is going wrong. Whether they have pinpointed it on addiction and diversion is, is, another, is another question I guess we could ask, but they're not surprised when they come in. They've suspected it for a long time. They've thought it for a long time. And, and that's probably the other half of the story is how do we empower coworkers to get help for their, their coworkers and their friends and their families without the threat of uh, they're, they're going to lose their job, they're going to end up in jail, uh, but just give them the help that they need. And we're working on that, uh, a solution for that as well. Tell us a little bit about Parkdale Center for Professionals. So Parkdale Center for Professionals was, um, um, was started in 2015. It's right outside of Chicago, Illinois, in a little uh, town on Lake Michigan in Chesterton, Indiana. It's a full diagnosis, abstinence-based 12-step program. Um, really anybody who, who has a high willingness to want to get better can come there. We specialize in healthcare professionals, uh, but we do take uh, anyone who really wants to come there and just kind of uh, get, get better and have their family systems improve and have the addiction and the recovery improve. There's a, a couple components to the program that make it very uh, effective. There's a comprehensive family program that takes the family along the journey of recovery and education as well. Um, the patient does much better when the family heals as well. As, as I'm sure you are well aware, the addiction doesn't only affect the person suffering, it affects all of these concentric circles and these concentric rings around them, starting with the family and anybody else that's close. They all get sick from the disease, so we try to heal them all at the same time. Uh, it's important for us to have a dual diagnosis treatment center. As we know, 70% of addictions are accompanied by a mental health, um, either misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, or not diagnosed at all. So we treat the mental health and the addiction health uh, simultaneously. Um, it's a, a program that also has consequences associated with it. Uh, our healthcare professionals are required to report to their monitoring agency of their state. It's the alternative to discipline program, which will monitor them as they reenter the profession and safeguard their practice uh, for the public, for the general public. 
so that's Parkdale Center for Professionals. It's, uh, like I said, located in Chesterton, Indiana. And uh, we're, we're open and ready to help anybody who needs it. So if somebody wanted to get more information about your facility, they could just do a search, I would imagine, for Parkdale Center for Professionals. Or is there email or a website? Yeah, absolutely. I can uh, give you both of them. The website is parkdalecenter.com. Uh, Google search will pick that up as well. And uh, very simply, to contact for more information, they can uh, drop an email to info at parkdalecenter.com, or they can call 888-883-8433. Wonderful. Rodrigo Garcia, thank you so much for all that you have shared with us today and the work that you are doing uh, in this area. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. I would imagine that this has really been an eye-opener for many of you, but with Rodrigo's help, it sounds like it's there, there are positive alternatives. This is Pamela Brewer. You, are, as you know, are listening to Mind Talk. You can listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to m y n d t a l k dot o r g. Mind Talk is available on several platforms, so just tune into your favorite one. And if we're not there, let us know, and we'll see what we can do to get on your favorite platform. If you'd like to be in touch, that's p a m e l a at mindtalk.org. Again, that's m y n d t a l k org and remember always if it's unacceptable then it's unacceptable you take care